right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the podcast. With me, I have three individuals from the Mid-Atlantic Vintage Baseball League joining us today. I have Jeff Swampy Kavasinski from the Diamond State Baseball Club located in Delaware. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. And then we have Tom Big Bat Fasalowicz from the Mutual Baseball Club based in New York. Tom, thanks for coming. Glad to be here. And we have Rick Stonewall Stratton from the Brandywine Baseball Club in Pennsylvania. Rick, thanks for coming. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks for having us. Now, Rick, you were the one that initially uh, reached out, uh, I believe it was through Instagram, and we started the conversation about having uh, members of your league come on the show. Uh, you know, it, it was great starting that conversation with you. I've really enjoyed these inter- these interviews that I've had with uh, members of the vintage baseball world. You know, we had the uh, we had a group from the SoCal, SoCal Vintage Baseball League come on. We had a group from the Central Valley Vintage Baseball Association come on. So it's been great. So, uh, guys, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing about how things are done in your neck of the woods because we've done a lot on the West Coast. We've yet to go to the East Coast. So. Uh, you know, I guess starting off, guys, are you all East Coast uh, born and raised? I know Rick said you grew up in New Hampshire, right? That's correct. Uh, this is Rick Stratton. Yes, I grew up in New Hampshire and uh, moved to the uh, suburban Philadelphia area in 2003 and uh, have been living uh, here ever since. Um, so, yeah, I'm an East Coast guy uh, back to the beginning. And Tom, are you an East Coast born and raised uh, gentleman as well? Born and raised in New York, um, lived in Cincinnati for 10 years in my, on my own, go to school, and uh, happy to be back in New York. Now, Tom, who do you align yourself with? Are you uh, Yankees or Mets there for, for New York fandom? Oh, strange as it may seem, I'm a Dodgers fan. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't see that coming. Very interesting. It, was that born out of anything in particular? Um, Steve Garvey, a big Steve Garvey fan. Got it. Okay. Very good. And then Jeff, same question for you. Are, are you an East Coast guy as well? Uh, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Michigan. Um, I moved out east in about 2003. Now, Delaware is kind of a wild card in terms of who you cheer for. Who's your MLB team that you follow? Uh, well, my MLB team is the Tigers. Uh, it's been a rough year for the Tigers fans, but uh, <laughs> most of my teammates are Phillies fans. Got it. Got um, it. If, you, if, you get, if you get into downstate Delaware, you'll find some Orioles fans down that way. Yep. But uh, northern Delaware is all Philly fans. Interesting. I, I've always wondered which way Delaware goes. You answered my question. I appreciate that. So, guys, you know, obviously you, you are involved in vintage baseball currently. Sounds like you're all obviously uh, fans of, of the MLB as well. Baseball. I grew up in Massachusetts cheering for the Red Sox. I'm here in Florida now. Um, it's hard to adopt the Marlins as my second team just because they're so horrible every year. But uh, <laughs> I try to look at it as uh, you don't you don't cheer for the Rays. You know the Rays. I could. You know, I there's that joke and it's true. You know, Tampa Bay is kind of like uh, uh, Boston Junior. You know, the Red Sox farm club in some ways because whenever the the Sox go play the Rays, there half the stadium's filled with Red Sox fans. It's all the snowbirds that go down for the winter. So, uh, I could do the raise. It's just the nice thing is I'm, I'm 30 minutes from, um, from the stadium here in Miami. And 
you know, it's cheap tickets, at least it's very easy to get in and, you know, get that $5 ticket and then move up close. But uh, the the competition's a little bit wanting. So we'll see if they can improve. So guys, why don't we go ahead and jump into it? I'd love to hear about your stories as to, you know, obviously a lot of people that listen to the show are baseball fans. Vintage baseball is a bit of a different animal, uh, just in terms of rules you play by. There's a commitment to it because there's a historical aspect. I'd like to hear from you guys you know, what were the beginnings of your interest? How did you get involved in vintage baseball? And uh, Jeff, why don't we start at the top? Why don't we start with you? Where, where did that interest begin? Um, well, I've always been a student of baseball history. And um, I was actually reading the newspaper, reading the, the Wilmington News Journal. And there was an article in there about uh, a club out of Maryland uh, called the Eclipse Club of, of Elkton, Maryland. And um, uh, it included like an email I could send an email to, and I sent an email to the guy, and uh, he says, "Yeah, come on out for a for a practice or whatever." And just at that time, I had some car troubles and I couldn't get anywhere, you know. And and the next year, a uh, club was forming out of Delaware, and I got an email from another guy who says, "Hey, this guy said he had an email from you and that you live in Delaware. Would you be interested in joining our club?" And by this time, my transportation issue had cleared up, and I was like, yeah, I'll come down and see what this is all about, and uh, find myself a great group of guys, and I've been going at it ever since. Now, is this the same league that you were in when you first started? Are you still involved in the same association, or is it a different league that you're a part of now? Right. Nope, same thing. Same one. Okay. Same so you're a veteran yep. here of the league. Uh, well, not as much as Tom, but yeah, I'm, I'm about uh, this 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 past season was my 11th season playing vintage baseball. Wow, much respect. Very good. Well, Tom, let's go to you. Your uh, background in vintage baseball. How did you get started? Um, I actually came across vintage baseball at the library. Um, I saw a flyer for um, games at Old Beth Page Restoration. And i uh, always been a big fan of baseball. Um, honestly, at the time, didn't know a lot about the history of the game. And was interested and went down, watched the game, and then I decided uh, they kind of pulled me out of the crowd and dressed me up and got in, and get involved at the Old Beth Page Restoration and eventually joined the travel team and uh, then formed my own travel team, the New York Mutuals. Now, when you went to that game to watch, did you have it in your head to eventually put on a uniform and play, or were you still on the fence? Like, was that the push that got you I, I was very yeah, I was very interested in playing. Um, I, I was in a competitive softball league for a long time. Didn't like the way it was going and uh, found that this was so much more interesting and uh, a lot more gentlemanly and um, not not as competitive, even though the games are competitive. It wasn't as competitive as the softball league, which was getting a little old. Sure, sure. Okay. And Rick, that brings us to you. What is your story? How did you get involved in vintage baseball? So back in 2013, um, I'd found a, a notice in the local newspaper about uh, a team beginning or a club beginning in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which is about 10 minutes from where I live. And, um, you know, I was, it piqued my interest. I, I've always been a student of, of baseball and history, and the two together just seemed like right in my wheelhouse. And I, I thought to myself, I'll go to this meeting. I'll I'll find out about this new club that's forming, and perhaps uh, you know they'll let me keep score or umpire, or uh, or maybe I'll just go to a couple games and watch. Um, it turned out that I was the second person to the meeting, 
And um, lo and behold, I became the vice president and the captain of the club and the uh, starting catcher. So, wow. you know, that that kind of I think that story is probably similar for a few of the clubs that started out. You you just kind of walk in not knowing what to expect. And and before you know it, you've got a uniform on and it's really easy to pick up. Um, I love that because I hadn't played competitive baseball in probably 20 years since I was a teenager. And uh, just to be able to walk on the field without too much practice and sort of pick up the, the game, um, I feel like the vintage rules themselves lend them, lend themselves well to um, just being a great equalizer. People of all ages and abilities and backgrounds can can play together and it doesn't seem too awkward. Sure. And, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that experience um, of the type of vintage baseball that you play. And I'm trying to look at this from the eyes, from the eyes of a new spectator like myself. I've, I've never played vintage baseball. I've certainly learned a lot about it from doing this podcast, but I'd like to hear a little bit about your league, the Mid-Atlantic Vintage Baseball League. Can you give us some details of what a game in your league would look like for someone who you know, walked in off the road or decided, you know, saw a flyer and they wanted to come see a game. Why don't we start off with talking about the field? What what would the field look like for a new spectator that came to your game? Uh, this is Tom speaking. The, the field is uh, similar to um, a modern baseball field in the, in the fact that it's 90 feet as far as the bases are concerned. Um, usually a grass field instead of a cutout infield dirt. Um, the the pitcher's distance would be 45 feet. The thing, the thing that you would notice difference is the home plate is a round plate. Um, and uh, those are the basic looks of what the field would look like. Now, when we're talking about uh, the outfield, are we talking about any sort of marker to show home run lines? Or is it just as far as it goes, that's where it goes? Yeah, uh, Jeff speaking. Um, the, uh, uh, our fields are always... Uh, we pick a large area with plenty of room and it's hit it as far as you can and get as many bases as you can. There are no fences. There are no over the fence home runs. And in fact, we've uh, done some historical research and have found that um, in the 1860s, when they had um, maybe an obstacle like a fence or something like that, they would, they would call a ball that went over the fence only a double because they didn't want people hitting the ball over the fence because it was, the balls were rare. You know, they didn't, you didn't have that many balls. So they wanted to discourage guys from hitting the ball over the fence. But we usually try and find a place that doesn't have a fence and it's just hit it as far as you can and get as many bases as you can. Right, right. You know, and, and part of the reason I asked that is I remember when I was talking to the Central uh, Valley Vintage guys, they were saying that some of the fields that they play on, I mean, there's forest in the outfield. So you've got guys you know, balls are hitting uh, trees in the outfield. They're they're weaving through trunks to be able to get the ball back in play to be able to throw it. And uh, it's interesting some of the, I guess, the natural barriers that come up for teams sometimes that play, you know, either by 1864, 1882 uh, rules. Right. Uh, Jeff, again, um, we had a field that we played at in Delaware City, Delaware, and we had a few trees in the far, far distance, probably almost 500 feet away. And it seemed like at least once every year, a deer would pop out of the woods and <laughs> there'd be a deer in far center field. Wow. And he'd look around for a little bit and then he'd disappear again. 
Well, uh, one more spectator to the game, right? There you go. I wonder if he wonder how good he wonder how how he can swing. <laughs> well, he's got the antlers, so he's got half a bat right there. There we go. There you go. Well, guys, I'd I'd love to hear about. So we've covered the field. Tell me about the uniforms. That's another interesting one. I've seen a lot of variation, and uh, you know, in terms of uh, how strictly people follow the um, historical accuracy of that. What is the uniform situation like for your league and your clubs? Hey guys, it's Rick here. Um, I'll I'll speak to this one a little bit. Um, what I've found with some of the clubs is that they um, try to mimic, um, I guess, a traditional fireman's uniform or bib uh, from the from the 1860s, and they'll sort of wear a shield on their chest. And apparently, this look was pretty common. Um, among firemen of the of that age, and so I think some clubs uh, or a lot of the clubs, you'll see a shield um, on the chest, kind of covering where the where the buttons come down. Um, but what other clubs also seem to do is just dress in very plain white um, uniform, you know, plain white top um, and trousers. Um, we we tend not to um, wear our uh, pants high so that the socks can be seen. You do see some clubs do that because it kind of looks neat. But if you were to be historically accurate to the 1860s, most clubs uh, wore the long trousers all the way down to the shoe, much like some of the modern players do now. And they almost tuck them underneath the shoe. Um, And and the Cincinnati Red Stockings kind of first, you know, burst onto the scene. They they were one of the first clubs to really kind of show the calf um, area and, and the Red Sox. So that's kind of where that was born. Must have been a scandalous moment for the public. Yes. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about the materials, guys, that your uniforms are made out of? Are you out there in the sun wearing wool or are you uh, a little liberal when it comes to the materials you use? Uh, Tom speaking. I, I think most of the clubs are a little liberal as far as that with a like a half wool. I, I, speaking of my own team um, and some of the other teams I've seen, there's Really, only one team that I've seen come across that wears all wool. That's a Providence Grays, and uh, it's itchy and it's hot. I've played in it once, <laughs> so it's 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 not it's not easy to play in those, especially when you're playing in days that are 100 degrees or in the high 90s. So it's um, I think most clubs, speaking for myself, is a, a half blend of uh, polyester and wool. Just uh, being. Um my own club is one of the few clubs that does not wear the bib style. Um, the, the diamond state baseball club was a, was, was a real club in 1865 and 66. And it lasted in, into the early 1870s. We have no photos of them. Uh, the only thing we had, the only real description we have is that they wore black pants and blue with newsboy caps. So we have uh, gone to civil war sutlers and we we wear what they call a Jefferson shirt, which is something that would have been worn around the campfire during the Civil War time. Um, and it's it's blue with sort of a, a buff colored checker pattern, um, which fits in with the colors that are on the the Delaware state flag. So it works for us. Um, and that that shirt, fortunately, is a hundred percent cotton. Breathes really nice. Uh, we we do wear black pants, so in the summertime that can be a problem. But uh, but the shirt breeze really nice, so we don't have a lot of uh, overheating issues with that. 
Now, is headwear common for all the teams that play in the league? Do you guys all have uh, team-issued hats, or is that optional? Uh, Tom speaking. Yeah, we, we have a no. We have team-issued hats. Most of the pictures you see from the 19th century in the 1860s, specifically, you see players wearing hats. Um, my team specifically, the New York Mutuals, was um, photographed. So I, I'm I'm lucky enough to have a photo to go by. So we copied our the 1870 club down to a T. Even though we play some 1864, uh, mostly 1864 games, we'll wear the 1870 uniform, and we're able to pride ourselves in that it's an accurate uniform, exactly the way it was. Um, most clubs do not, like Jeff mentioned earlier, do not have a picture to go by because you had to be a, a major club to be photographed at the time. So most of them have to go by what a description of the club is. But as far as the hats are concerned, um, most most clubs, all clubs that I've seen wear hats. Okay, yeah, the historical uh, recreation, That's that's uh, I have to commend you for that. And that's got to be tough for some teams to have to create something out of nothing in terms of, um, you know, having a visual representation of what it looked like. But, you know, looking at some of the pictures on your website, the league website, I think you guys do a good job of recreating the time period. So kudos to that. Um, why don't we move on to equipment? What type of equipment are players allowed to wear? Uh, what are they not allowed to use in terms of being able to supplement you know, their play on the field. Hey guys, it's Rick here. Um, I think I'll take this one. I, the equipment is pretty basic. There isn't a lot of equipment needed other than a baseball bat and the baseball and bases. Um, you won't really see any gloves, uh, you, unless you're playing some of the later year rules and, um, you know, bats are, are wooden, Obviously, uh, the specifications are uh, fairly um, loose. I mean, you can't use a modern-looking bat with a cupped end or you know flashy logos on it. Um, but there's a minimum diameter for the handle and a maximum diameter for the barrel. Mm -hmm. uh, you won't really see curved tapers too often. You might see some funny bat handles on on the bottom. Um, the baseball is a you know, leather ball. It's a lemon peel stitched ball so it's not stitched like a modern baseball is it's not a figure eight stitch it the the leather is stitched at four um corners um and that's called a lemon peel stitch and the bases are um they're they're sacks um i think traditionally they were filled with sawdust or sand ours we use uh, i can speak for our club we use like rubber chips that you'd find on a playground um, and that seems to hold up pretty well um, and as far as other equipment goes, I mean, if you're wearing glasses out there and they're prescription and they, they're the kind that, you know, um, turn into sunglasses in the sun, I, I guess that's okay. But we try to refrain from letting guys wear sunglasses out there. Um, cause we want it to, we want the look to remain, um, authentic. And so we can't have guys playing out there with Oakley's. Um, so we, you know, we just try our best to, to make the look, um, authentic. And um, there really isn't much other in, in terms of equipment out there. There's foul poles, perhaps, um, but those are usually flags uh, placed out there at the left field and right field corners. And, and that's about it. Sure. So with the authenticity factor that you're playing with, tell me a little bit about what the scoring patterns look like in your league. Are we talking about high scoring games? Are we talking about low scoring affairs? Where does that usually land for your teams, for your clubs? 
this is Jeff speaking. Um, this is actually a little bit of a, a, a mystery among vintage clubs. Uh, most of our games will usually be in like the, the winning team will be in the upper teens, maybe lower twenties. And the losing team will be uh, somewhere around 10 to 15, something like that. But if you look at the actual scores, actual of actual games from the 1860s, uh, like the first game the Diamond State ever played, they won 69 to 28, and that was not uncommon. It was not uncommon to have games where the the total between the two teams was over 100 runs. And so it's a little bit of a mystery why we play with we play with uh, replica equipment. We play with replica baseballs, replica bats. We play by the old rules, but we can't quite muster a 69 to 28. We we played one team one time that was extremely inexperienced, and we scored 68 runs on them. Uh, I felt really bad for them, um, but but that was that's literally the highest we've ever scored. Uh, let's put it this way: that's the highest the Diamond State Club has ever scored in the 21st century. Um, uh, we we can't seem to to quite replicate those things, but when we when we play by some different rules, like when we play by 1866 rules, and a fly ball is no longer an out on one bounce, at least when it's fair, well then all of a sudden the run scoring goes up, but it's still at most like maybe a 30 to 20 type of a game. Yeah, that is interesting. I've never given that much thought. I you know is is it the the general healthiness of the players from then to now? That that's interesting. Yeah, the the thought is that uh, uh, we just we've all grown up with baseball, and we know what we're doing. We know how to field balls, and we know things like relay plays and stuff like that. It's just ingrained us. We've been doing it since we were seven years old, and those guys didn't have that advantage. So I think the the theory, at least, is that at least some of it can be explained by inexperienced fielding in the 1860s. That you know they would have been kicking the ball around a bit. Sure, sure. That that's I like that. That's a good theory. That makes some sense. Now, with uh, the high scoring games and the difference in terms of the field and the uniforms and the equipment, you guys must have that moment where you started playing and something happened. You know, like wow, I'm playing 1864 rules baseball right now. Do any of you have any stories you'd like to share about maybe a difficult thing that happened or a funny thing that happened that kind of just highlights that that difference in in how the game is played? Well, this is Tom speaking for me, not just, uh, not just when I first started, but throughout you, you hit the ball. Well, or I, I hit the ball. Well, a line drive and it would bounce up and a player, a fielder would catch it on a bound one out, one bound and it's an out. And, uh, you know, you're used to being, you know, being able to tell off the crack of the bat that, Hey, that's a hit every time. And so that's, that's, you know, to me, that's always frustrating. I'm sure the other guys would agree on that. To, to hit a ball that's really well hit and well placed, even to have it bounce up on an unusual rocky field or a field that has strange uh, bumps in it, and have it bounce up high so the fielder catches it, and you're out, even though you hit the ball well. This is Jess being. Uh, I'll second Tom's. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's frustrating. I I call that it's a hit in every league, but this one. Um, um, the, I remember one of my first games, uh, a big adjustment for me, I had been playing some softball. Big adjustment for me was just the 90 foot base pads. Um, 
I hit a ball. It was in between two outfielders. I had stroked it pretty well. And uh, about the time the ball lands and I can see it between the outfielders, I'm almost at first base. I just take a second to look down and make sure I touch first base. And I turned, I was going to second because I figured that's between the outfielders. This is going to be a double. And next thing you know, I was out by 30 feet. Um, so <laughs> just, just, just the fact that it's 90 foot bases, that takes some getting used to. Um, the other, the other one is the foul tips. Um, you, you can foul tip in this league, just the tiniest hair to where you, sometimes you don't even realize you foul tipped it. And, uh, they'll call you out if the catcher catches it, even if the catcher catches it on one bounce. And that is so frustrating. Uh, you know, I sometimes get into slump because I, I do that multiple times in a row and I'll, I'll joke about it and I'll get, get, get up to bat the next time. And I'll be like, all right, all right, Jeff, this time hit the ball forward. That's the idea. Rick, what about you? Any good stories from your beginning years with uh, vintage baseball? Yeah, I, I liked, um, I liked Swampy's phrase. Um, it's a hit in any other league. I, I have another one that I like to use and probably a couple of the guys on my team are sick of hearing it, but I say that's a hit in any other century. Um, because you know, you, you hit this really good line drive and, and you've seen, you know, you've seen major leaguers make that same hit right in the gap and you get a quick outfielder and a big bounce and forget it. It's you're out. Um, so what I tried to do early on was I kind of made my living on, you know, little dribblers uh, or ground balls to third base. Um, and so, you know, you got to think about it. The, the third baseman's got to field it cleanly. He's got to pick it up and he's got to throw it over to first base. And the first baseman's got to, you know, catch it cleanly. And, um, you know, if you have any type of speed and I wouldn't say that I have a lot of speed, but I have a, you know, middle, middle of the road speed, usually I could beat those out and, you know, and I'd be sliding into first base. And so, um, that's kind of how I started out and that's kind of how I made my living the first couple of years. Um, and I, you know, I've never really been able to hit the ball far. Um, so that was kind of how I, how I made my hay, um, early on is you, you get on base and you steal bases and, uh, just try not to hit the ball in the air. Cause if there's a good outfielder, chances are you're going to be out. Way to adapt to the situation there, Rick. That's that's a good strategy. Jeff, I have to ask, with the 90-foot base pats, have you, have you found a strategy that works for you? Do you just hammer the ball every time towards that deer, or what's your, what's your strategy? Um, my strategy is uh, I developed a sort of a theory that uh, I based off of the old Ted Williams theory, right? Ted Williams faced pitchers who were pitching off of high mounds, and Ted Williams' theory was, the plane of the ball coming in. So when the pitcher's coming off a mound, the plane, plane sort of coming down. And his theory was to meet the ball on the same plane. So your swing would be coming up slightly. Well, we don't have mounds. There were no mounds in the 1860s. Um, and the pitching is underhand. Um, and so the pitching comes in pretty flat. So my theory for a while uh, was that the pitch comes in flat want my swing to be flat. I'm going to send it back out flat. It happens to be right at a guy. I mean, I, I hope I've hit it well enough that it's like, you want to catch that. Good luck, pal. Um, <laughs> but uh, if, it, if it's not right at a guy, that's going to go right through the infield and it probably won't have enough of a hop that the outfielder would get under it. So my, my theory for a long time was pitches in flat, hit it back flat. 
That way there's not as much of a hop, risk of a hop. Now, do I actually hit it back flat? Not not all that often. <laughs> Jeff, uh, Jeff, you'll have to remind me next time I face you in pitching, I'm not going to throw it in flat. <laughs> <laughs> you hush, you and Brad Shaw, man. Brad Shaw knows that, and he throws me moon balls. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm having you guys give up team secrets here. I didn't even think of that. Oh man. Okay. <laughs> don't worry. I don't, I don't hit them back to the flat all that often as much anymore. <laughs> guys, you know, I, it, it's, it's a good point that you bring up because, you know, modern strategies would not necessarily work if you had to step into this situation in terms of how you would approach batting and fielding. And I, I think you brought up good points where you have to, adjust your game based on the realities of the rules that you're playing under. And so in both those cases, I, that's a great illustration of, of, you know, it's, it's not a straight line, I guess you could say between, you know, picking up the aluminum bat and playing modern day baseball versus uh, doing vintage baseball as, as we're talking about here. Um, you know, I want to switch over to asking you as a whole, we talked a little bit about your individual experiences. One thing that that really struck me after looking at the Mid-Atlantic uh, Vintage Baseball League website and researching some of your teams, you know, I've had a chance to talk to some other Vintage Baseball Leagues, and a lot of them are either just starting out, you know, they're in their infancy, or they're looking to scale. You know, they've, they have a solid uh, foundation underneath them, but they want to get more people participating more people coming out to the games and building out more clubs from, from, I believe my count was correct. The, the league that you gentlemen are a part of features 19 clubs. Is that correct? I believe so. And, you know, and on top of that, right, yeah, yeah I, I believe that was the number. And then on top of that, it seemed you had um, sponsorships from local businesses. It seems that you have uh, a, uh, a good attendance that you can expect, you know, good local support, my question for you would be, you know, we have other individuals listening to this podcast that participate in vintage baseball and maybe in situations where they want to start their own clubs or grow their leagues. Are there any things that you can think of, like factors that maybe have attributed to the growth of your league, the success of your league? Um, personally, I think our league is uh, stands out and is successful enough because we maintain authenticity. It's, it's, it's so important um, to maintain that and represent the game as it was played as best as you can in 1864. So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're not true to that, true to the, um, the rules of 1864, eventually it'll come back and, you know, blow up in your face when somebody comes by that knows maybe a little more than you do. So most the whole league itself prides itself on being authentic. Um, and we don't, when we submit a new team to the league, um, that's one of the first things that are looked at. I'll, I'll add on to that too. Um, what Tom said, this is Rick. Um, you know that, yeah, historic, historically accurate baseball is, is probably one of the most important things to our club. Um, also to have fun, to engage, to go and speak to the fans who are there and answer their questions. That's important to us. Um, and I think, um, it's in terms of sponsorship and, and those things, um, you know, I think it's important that each club gets itself uh, three or four people who can commit some time and energy to the betterment of the club and I think that's kind of been the strength of the Brandywine Baseball Club is that we have 
four or five guys usually that we elect as officers and each one has a role. Um, you know, one person's uh, role is to uh, be the captain of the club and get a roll call before each game and make sure we have enough players to, to turn out and play. Um, another is the president or, or treasurer to make sure that there's enough funds to do the things we want to do. And then our club, um, one of my roles is I kind of handle marketing and that's really just managing, you know, social media, getting the word out there, participating in podcasts like this, um, speaking to the local newspapers, those types of things. So, so getting the word out there is important, um, so that, you know, we can, share this this great game with with people who may not have been to a, a vintage baseball or may not know what baseball looked like 150 years ago yeah this is uh jeff speaking at all those things all those things that tom and, and rick said are right um part of what rick was talking about i think is uh it's just community outreach you have to remember that just like in the 1860s these baseball teams were the pride of their city um, in, in Delaware history, there's a, there's a small town called Delaware city where we play fairly frequently. Um, and they had a team that Atlas ball baseball club of Delaware city. And you didn't have guys who were more than 15, 20 miles away from Delaware city who played on this club. So these were teams that were sort of a civic pride thing. So we get some of our growth just from outreach in the community. Find a local park that's having a program. Find a local um, brewery or or whatever else, and and it's it's somewhere that where they have a little bit of a property. You say, hey, this looks like a good spot. Do you think we could set up and maybe play here one time? And you know, you just and just keep at it. Keep going for the local parks and the local historical programs and stuff like that um, un- until you get a yes. Um, and you know, you're going to get no 10 times, but, but, but keep trying. Um, you, you, it, so it, it sort of harkens back to that 1860s. We're, we're the civic pride of this place and we, we want to reach out to the community and, and join in, uh, the fun. Basically we want to show them a little more fun. That's, that's great advice from all of you. And, and I think that you really hit the nail on the head. It's about, getting people interested in what's happening in their local areas. And I'd like to just kind of dovetail a question onto this for all three of you. How important do you think it is for vintage baseball to try and get some type of foothold with younger generations? Um, You know, and I'm not just talking about, you know, college age to, um, you know, mid thirties types of players, but you know, kids, middle school, high school, how, how important do you think it is to get them interested in vintage baseball for not only the future of vintage baseball, but it's just a love for history and the sport in general. I'll, is- I'll try to answer this one. This is Rick. Um, I think that baseball is unique in a way. I, you know, you could probably say this about some other sports, but I just feel like history and baseball um, go together so darn well that, you know, kids, kids pick up a basketball and they're shooting hoops in the driveway or something. And I just don't feel like it, it doesn't feel historic to me, but, but when you see a baseball game being played, um, in a field, um, between kids or adults, it just, it feels like, you know, it's like, it's like, it goes together. Like, uh, I forget what the saying is, 
it's it's just it feels so american and so it's one of the rare things that makes me feel patriotic about this country sometimes is that just baseball and history go together so well and i think kids um enjoy watching adults play a kids game and and it looks a little different but it's it's still baseball and it's still something they recognize and it still looks a lot of fun uh, this is jeff speaking i uh I just want to agree with everything Rick just said. Um, I mentioned Delaware City, and we used to play quite frequently down there in Delaware City. And I would go down there for meetings with the, the folks who ran the – there was a park there. Uh, and I would meet with them. And it would be like February, middle of February. And then I'd swing by the field. And the spot where we played in Delaware City was, was just a big patch of grass. But it had a, a, a fence like a backstop. So it was like sort of recognizable as a baseball field. And I'd be down there on a Tuesday in February and I would catch a dad and a son out there playing ball. And it just like, just blew me away. Like, like it's February. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a particularly nice day that day. And it was, it was like 65 degrees and warm. And I think it might've been president's day. So the kid had the day off of school or something. Um, but it just, it just blew my mind. I, I mean, I'm here in February, and this kid, this dad and the kid are out there playing ball, and it it does it it it. Um, baseball is something that everybody can talk about. I went to this game with my dad. I went to that game with my grandfather. You know, uncles. Uh, it, it spans generations, and and people compare the players today versus the players when I was growing up versus the players in my dad's era. It, it's just, it's so pervasive in baseball. And I, and I agree with Rick, not in the same way. You see two kids play shooting hoops in a driveway and you ask them about Dr. J or something. And they'd be like, who? It just, it's just not the same. I, and I, and I can't put my finger on why, but um, uh, it's not. And, and I mean, I think we, we have some fairly younger guys on our club um, and a couple of whom are, uh, sons of old, older guys we have on our club, um, but they're they're dedicated guys who come out fairly often and um, enjoy enjoy the game of vintage baseball. So I, you know, I think uh, if we just keep doing what we're doing, we'll find younger guys, and and younger guys will get into it. This is uh, Tom speaking. We, uh, so I'm speaking as one of those older guys. Thanks, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> my 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 three my three sons participate in vintage baseball um now but got involved um we we usually play a game of rounders hence the podcast um with the with the kids after the game to get them involved and i've in my 22 years of playing have seen some of these kids actually grow up to play vintage baseball they'll say oh remember i played rounders with you so and so and you know so many years ago and all of a sudden, they're playing vintage baseball, which of course makes me feel terribly old. But uh, it's it's one way to get the kids involved. They they enjoy watching, but they want to go up there and take a swing too. So giving the swing at the end sometimes helps with that. Yeah, you know, as someone, I spent twelve years in education as a teacher and a principal, and um, you know, I see with the kids. You know, it was always a concern for me as a baseball fan. It just seemed like more and more every year as kids came up, especially through middle school and high school. There just wasn't that interest in baseball anymore. It was more with the faster paced sports. And, you know, I, I would try and, and uh, link in 
uh, baseball into a lot of my subjects because I was a history teacher. And, you know, when kids realize just how interwoven baseball is with American history and, and, you know, I think just the nuances of the game, like they do get interested in it. And, you know, I think it's all of our jobs, not just vintage baseball, but anybody that loves the sport to, I guess, impress upon kids. And I don't know what's causing that, that gap nowadays, but I think people, when they're exposed to the sport, even just playing it, like you said, after, after watching a game, it sparks an interest in them and it starts to grow. And that's what we need to do on all levels, you know, just to ensure the, the continued popularity of baseball, because, you know, the, the trends are not encouraging, I guess you could say, uh, in terms of generational interest. So, um, you know, it's just something I like to, to see what vintage baseball is doing. And I commend you guys on having, I guess, an ear to that, you know, and, um, vintage baseball, I think has a role to play in baseball's popularity overall. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and if I could go off a little, just a little bit more, this is Jeff speaking. Um, I think that sort of like the organized, like the little league baseball, a lot of it is, do you have the right bat? Do you have the right shoes? Do you have the right, you know, and then you get into travel clubs and it gets expensive and do you, can your parents afford it and all that stuff. I think vintage baseball has a, has a, an opportunity there because with our game, you show up, it's cheap. There is no equipment. You just here, have a uniform. Our uniforms are very inexpensive and you can, you can wear it for years. Um, and, and it's just, it, ours is it's like a simpler game than what a lot of the kids are exposed to when they're exposed to organized baseball, quote unquote. Yep. That's a great point. You know, expense is an issue and, and, um, and not only that, I think vintage baseball really gives you a chance to show, you know, a little bit more of your natural skill in a way, because you're not depending on as much equipment to be able to get the job done. I mean, you're palming that ball, you know, you're swinging that heavy piece of lumber. It's, it's, uh, it's a physically, um, I don't want to say demanding, but it, it certainly, it requires technique. It requires you to really, um, you know, have an ability, I guess you could say, or to hone an ability would be a better way to say it. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break for the seventh inning stretch. Stay tuned for more conversation with the Mid-Atlantic Vintage Baseball League. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. And welcome back to the show, everybody. Let's continue our conversation with the guys from the Mid-Atlantic Vintage Baseball League. So, guys, I, I would love to jump a little bit deeper into the Mid-Atlantic Vintage Baseball League and learn a little bit more about your clubs. I think one of the most interesting things I find, at least when I'm talking to vintage baseball clubs, is the stories of how baseball came to your areas and you know some of the nuances of what, what led to official clubs being formed and I guess where we pick up the story today and looking at history. So um, if you could share a little bit about you know, your location, how the team got maybe a specific name or the colors or the logos they chose, just kind of a background to how baseball came to your part of the country. Um, Jeff, I'd like to start with you uh, in Delaware, the Diamond State Baseball Club. Can you give us a, a mini history lesson on the origins for you? 
Sure. Uh, ours is actually fairly well documented. The Diamond State Baseball Club was the first baseball club formed in the state of Delaware. Uh, I say that I think the, the Patuxent Club, also of Wilmington, uh, formed about five days later. This was October of 1865. Um, we're pretty sure that, that uh, some sort of bat and ball game, whether it was town ball or rounders or something like that, would have been played in like social clubs, uh, you know, among uh, just everyday citizens. And, and let's be honest, among more aristocratic folks, you know, aristocratic folks had time on their hands and could play, could stand to play games, you know, uh, but they weren't specifically organized to be a baseball club. Uh, but in 1865 in October, some, some Wilmington attorneys uh, organized the first baseball club, the diamond state baseball club. Delaware has been known as the diamond state since Thomas Jefferson gave them the nickname to the state. Um, and they then they played the they played the first known game in Delaware, winning that thing sixty nine to twenty eight. As I said, uh, they played against a thing called St. Mary's, which was a um, sort of a boarding school. It was like in between a high school and a college. Um, it, it of course went defunct uh, not long after the war. Actually, in about the early eighteen seventies. Uh, but then the Diamond State uh, got themselves. Uh, shall we say a couple of ringers for 1866? Um, although uh, Andrew Gibney was on the club in 1866, Andrew Gibney was later on the famous 1869 Nationals Club that took a Western swing and went undefeated. Um, and, th- and then uh, they also, we, we believe Gibney brought on a young man out of Philadelphia by the name of Fergie Malone. Fergie Malone went on to great fame with the Athletic Club of Philadelphia as a catcher. And um, a few years later, in 1871, was the first year there was really a real league of baseball players. I mean, even though they have, you have the famous 1869 Cincinnati Reds, it's not until 1871 that, like, there's rules you have to play all the other teams. You have to play them at home and play them at their at their city. Um, so it's really the first year that there is a league, so to speak. And uh, that was the year the Philadelphia athletics won the league. And Fergie Malone was the catcher that year. And, um, but, it, but in five years prior, he had been on the diamond state baseball club and they uh, won all the games against other Delaware clubs and were the champions of Delaware, uh, including when they played the Delaware city Atlas, who I recommend, have mentioned a couple times before um they played the delaware city atlas in june of 1866 it was a big deal the atlas were the the quote-unquote champions of the delaware at that time and the diamond state beat them 32 to 13 i think it was and people remembered that game for years and the trophy ball uh was kept for years and our Team historian and the first team president of our club, John Medcalf, had been on the search for years to find out where the ball was. And a couple of years ago, we found out that the ball had actually been sent to the Baseball Hall of Fame. I have touched that baseball in my hands, a ball from 1866, which is kind of an amazing experience. Jeff, is, is there still a, a uh, this is kind of a difficult question now that I think of it. I don't know if you have. Uh, any any uh, insight into this? Is Delaware still a kind of a hotbed for baseball prospects nowadays? It seems like love for the sport runs deep in your state. 
Um, it does. We've, we've had a few major leaguers. Uh, Brett Oberholzer was a pitcher for a while. Uh, Kevin Mensch is Kevin Mensch is a, a, a Delaware guy. Uh, went to the University of Delaware. Uh, his his major league career is now over. Um, and then there's the story of Paul Goldschmidt, who was born in Delaware, and his parents moved away to Texas when he was like two or three years old. Uh, so he doesn't remember anything about Delaware, but he's a famous major leaguer. Got it. Okay. That yeah, just just kind of thinking about. I've learned a lot about Delaware's roots here, and and just. Uh, Wondering if that rings true today. So, and who knows? Maybe Goldschmidt, you know, picked up, uh, you know, a ball in his crib or something, and realized, hey, in his his infant brain, baseball is for me. <laughs> he swung a he swung a plastic bat and busted the family TV or something. There you go. Yeah, I mean, there's always an origin story, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Tom, let's go ahead and go to you. Uh, tell us a little bit. You represent the Mutual Baseball Club, which is based in New York. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin story of the sport in your area? Yes, well, I'm lucky enough, like I said earlier, that to have a lot of documentation as far as the Mutual Baseball Club. But they started in 1857 as a, an outbreak of the Mutual Hook and Ladder Company, number one. And uh, many of the employees were had jobs, and I'll put that in quotes, um, for the, the hook and ladder. But they were basically um, baseball players first. Um they played their games in Hoboken and in Brooklyn, and eventually in Brooklyn um, compared to our modern club, which we play on Long Island. Um, but they went on to win the national championship in 1868 and 1870. Um, we base our, like I said, we base our club on the 1870s uniforms. The, the, the way we came up with the colors of the uniforms, um, which I believe you asked is uh the, the club is mentioned in uh, many articles as being called the green stocking. So right away we figured out green because we're looking at black and white photos and trying to figure out what their color is. It wasn't easy, but it's easy to tell it's a white uniform with dark piping. And um, the word green stockings is mentioned several times. So that's how we became uh, green as far as our color and our uniforms concerned. Um, we are one of the first clubs to have a betting scandal <laughs> way back in 1867 they were uh known we were known to play some teams um that weren't um uh, what i would say major league quality as as much as we may play a, 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 a local team and uh the mutuals were a, a top-notch clubs they would play them and uh if the betting odds were right, they, they might throw a game. They did throw a couple of games. Three players got ejected from for a season. But there weren't a lot of rules as far as betting was concerned back then. Um, uh, that's basically the history of our club. We went all the way to 1876. And in 1876, we were part of the National League, the first eight teams to be in the National League. So had, had there not, um, in 1876, we didn't finish the season. So the, uh, the National Association threw them out of the league. Had it not happened, instead of rooting for the Mets, you might be rooting for the Mutuals. But uh, yeah, so uh, obviously a mistake on their part by not finishing the season because of financial difficulties. Um, and that's that's the history, the very brief history of the Mutuals. So that brings us to Rick. Rick, tell us a little bit about your club. You're from the Brandywine Baseball Club based in Pennsylvania. Uh, share some of your origin story. 
Yeah, so we have a little bit of documentation about the the origins of our club. And as baseball became very popular in Philadelphia and some of the other metropolitan cities, um, some of the, you know, as you you go a little further beyond those cities, um, you will find local towns uh, to, to have their own clubs. So in 1865, uh, in, in September, right around this time of year, uh, the Brandywine Baseball Club um, played their first game. And um, what we do know is that the, the club actually remained in existence right up until the um, 1919. Um, so I think we have one of the longer histories of, of some of the other uh, vintage baseball clubs. And um, they, they did particularly well against other local clubs, against other towns within um, our county. Um, but as soon as, you know, a big club like the Athletic uh, Club of Philadelphia came in, we usually got clobbered by those big, bigger teams. Um, but uh, baseball was v- quite popular in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And um, there's, there's many players who um, played for Brandywine who went on to play uh, either in the major leagues or for other clubs. So I feel like our club was kind of a, um, a stopping ground um, or, or just a stepping stone for some players, uh, almost like a minor league club. That's kind of how I view it um, for, for players as they kind of moved up the ranks or, or went on to uh, bigger and better things. So, you know, I think Westchester, Pennsylvania has a pretty good history of baseball, um, we may not have the success and, and the prestige of some of the other clubs and cities, um, but we were definitely a, a part of the story. And so we got some articles from the Chester County Historical Society, and we see the, the Brandywine Baseball Club is mentioned in, in many of these articles. And so there's accounts of, of games that were played, and, and there were some betting scandals, there was criminal activities, um, you know, there were fights and so all this stuff is just kind of tells the story of, of our club. And so we, we're continuing to research and try to find more of those fun stories to sort of weave into our, into our, uh, current day activities. Uh, for instance, we did find a story that, um, a, a cat was buried underneath home plate, uh, as a way to curse, uh, one of the opponents, and so we tried to do this. Not, we didn't get a real cat, but we brought a stuffed cat to one of our games and sort of put it behind home plate to see if that would help us win. And it didn't really help us that day, but it was a fun story to tell, and everyone got quite a kick out of it. Um, so there is there is history to our club. Um, uh, there's a couple of links to Herb Pennock, who is a Hall of Fame pitcher. Um, he, he uh, I believe his father played for the Brandywine Club at one point, and um, some of the other players on Brandywine discovered how good uh, Herb was and helped him sort of, uh, I guess, um, hone in on his pitching skills for his uh, very storied career. Uh, this is Jeff speaking. Uh, I just wanted to add one one quick thing about the Diamond State Club. Is the uh, um, the Diamond State Club didn't last too long? 1872. Uh, the current iteration. So the Diamond State Club has far outlasted the first one. We, we reformed in 2009, and we're still going strong. And um, the Diamond State, the original Diamond State Club was like six or seven years. 
Wow. So yeah, reaching across generations here. That's, that's, that's very interesting, Jeff. And, you know, with all three of what you guys said about your clubs, um, and with so many other vintage baseball clubs I've talked to, it's, we're talking about the origin stories here you know, with so many vintage baseball clubs, the, the origin stories of baseball as we know it today started with these groups and see that progression. It's just, you know, baseball really owes where it is today to a lot of these clubs. And that really brings me to my next question, gentlemen, in, in your minds, you know, part of what needs to be done is marketing for vintage baseball. Um, your pitch to people listening to the show, people that have never had any interaction with vintage baseball, why should uh, fans, players, spectators support and participate in this style of sport in vintage baseball? This is Tom speaking. Uh, I think it's, it's important. It's a simpler time, a simpler uh, period in our history. And I think to, to be able to keep part of history alive and show people what it's like and, to become part of that is is exciting and um, uh, interesting. So I, I think uh, you know some who's interested in joining would be uh, you know attracted to the fact that they're actually recreating a piece of history, even though we don't know the outcomes of our games. Uh, recreating a part of history that they can show people and uh, research and and learn things from you know actually being able to have living history uh you know it's it's a lot easier to learn about history if you can actually experience it somehow and this is one way to experience it yeah this is rick from the brandywine baseball club uh i think it's a great way for you know younger generations to understand the origins of this game that uh, their fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers probably played at one point. And so I think that's always great. Um, it's also a, a good way to get involved with the community. What, as, as a player for this club, um, when I moved to Pennsylvania in 2003 and, and lived in, in suburban, uh, Philadelphia, I, I never really felt like I was part of a community, until I joined this baseball club. And so when I put on the uniform, I, I, um, I identify with my, my local area. Now I, I feel like now I'm part of the history. I'm part of the story and I'm part of the community. So that's, it's been pretty special for me in that way. And I think if others could experience that once in a while, um, I think, you know, the world and the communities we live in would be, um, a, a much greater place. Uh, yeah, this is Jeff speaking. I mean, uh, I think I kind of mentioned it before, you know, the, our game is a little simpler. It's, it's, it's less equipment. It's less, uh, specific things you need to have, you know, you just show up and, and there's a uniform. Yeah, there's a uniform to buy, but it's not that much. And, um, then there's like a little membership fee, but it's not that much. And so many times we just focus on, getting people to come out to the games because we figure a visitor becomes a volunteer because we try and keep the games, we try, we try and keep it historically accurate above everything else. But we also try and keep it fun. And when people see, you know, that we're having fun on the bench and joking around, um, you know, that then all of a sudden they want to join and then they're like, 
what's this about the, if it's a bounces once, it's an out? What's going on with that? And we get someone to explain it to them. And next thing you know, um, they're like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if I could join that. So it's a, just a bunch of fun. And the, the, the community helps us out and we help the community out. And it makes for a great time. One more thing I'd like to add. This is Rick from the Brandy Wine Club. I feel like through my experience, I've I've probably met people I wouldn't have normally met had not, had I not joined the club. Um, I've been to places I probably would not have gone to had I joined this club. And so the overall experiences I've been afforded as um, I'm I'm really appreciative of. And if uh, baseball and history is a vehicle for that, then it's really. Um, perfect for me. So I'm just uh, happy to be part of it. I'm happy to share with other people and hopefully get them involved. And you can usually spot the one person in the crowd with a twinkle in their eye that, wow, this is so cool. This is, this is really interesting to me. It's history. It's baseball. I, I, it's so accessible. It's free in most cases. Um, so that's, that's really important to me that just the experience has been I feel like I get more out of it than I put in. So um, I have no problem uh, putting in time and effort to, to make our club better or to make the sport better or to um, teach people about it. And this is a great place for us to have a call to action, gentlemen. You know, uh, to our listeners, if there's anybody that lives in the Northeast who's interested in getting involved with the with the club, with, with any of the clubs that we've spoken to, you know, with the Mid-Atlantic Vintage Baseball League in general, or just wherever you are, you know, in the country, or we even have some listeners outside the country um, to get involved with vintage baseball, uh, you know, and to, to be a part of this living history piece. Um, but specifically in the Northeast, guys, I'd like to give you the chance to provide just a brief overview of information of how people could, you know, take action on this if they have interest and maybe give one of you guys a call to join your club or to get involved in this league. Um, Rick, I, I figured I'd go to you with this question. How can people get involved in vintage baseball in your area, in, in the Northeast, in the Mid-Atlantic area, if they're interested in participating? Yeah, so there's a, there's a, there's a website you can go to for the Mid-Atlantic Vintage Baseball League, um, M-A-V-B-B-L.com, um, I believe, or it might be .org, I'm sorry. But if you just... .com. Okay, it's .com. Yep. Thank you. Um, yeah, if you just go on there, you can perhaps find a team that's close to you. Most clubs in our league have a Facebook page or a website of their own. Um, so I feel like if you just, if you just search vintage baseball um, in your particular area, you'll find a club that's hopefully near to you. And if there isn't one, and if you'd like one, and if you feel like you could uh, um, get, you know, 10 or 15 people interested in it, you should start one. And, and, and I would suggest you go to your, uh, local historical society or library and just kind of do some research and, and find out if there was a club in your town. And, and if there was, perhaps you could uh, start one in, in their namesake. And, and we're always looking for new members. Um, and so, you know, you can go to our website. It's brandywinebbc.org. And uh, we also have a Facebook page and, and Instagram and Twitter and all that. So we're pretty easy to find. Um, but you know, most, most clubs do have, um, you know, websites and emails and, and Facebook pages where you can reach out to them. And, and, and I'm sure most of them are willing to take new members on. Uh, I'm just going to second everything that Rick said. Um, 
The Diamond State Club also is should be pretty easy to find. We're www.diamondstatebaseball.com. Uh, we try to keep we try to keep our website up to date, recent scores, and all that fun stuff. Uh, we also have a Facebook and a Twitter and an Instagram uh, or DiamondStateBBC at Gmail dot com is our email address. There's no such thing as too many players. No such thing. Agreed. Uh, if we had tw- if we had twenty guys show up to a game, I would lose my mind. Um, you know, it, you can have a, a list of 20 guys and you say, hey, the game is Sunday at one o'clock. Who can make it? You know, there there are weeks during the summer where, you know, people have busy lives and you'll struggle to get nine guys out. So if you can have a list of 25 instead of 20. Great. You can have a list of 30 instead of 25. Better. Um, there's no such. And, and we've certainly had guys who are very committed to the club. And have just fallen away. You know, life just gets a little too busy sometimes. You have family problems or you move away or something like that. And so you have guys who are committed to the club, but they they have to give it up. Um, Life happens sometimes. So there's no such thing as too many players. Always need new blood. Uh, This is Tom speaking. As far as uh, we're concerned, I think first off to say you could contact any one of us three. And if you're looking to start a team, will help you start a team. You know, you don't, you don't have to start, uh, you know, from scratch. If, if you want, we can help you. We can even help you with research. Sometimes the, the idea of starting a team could be a little overwhelming, especially when you look at, uh, you hear some of the, the, of this podcast that we're talking about and how into it we are, but we can certainly help you with it. Um, personally, if you're in the Long Island area and you're interested in playing, you can easily contact me at Big Bat at nymutuals.com or check out our website at nymutuals.com. But I I know any one of us would be happy to help you start a team if you're looking to do that. And to our listeners, I will make sure to include each club's information as well as the league information. And if there's any personal information uh, that would like to be shared by the gentleman on the show, that I will put that in the show notes to make it easier for you to take that step and get involved, or at least learn about how you can get involved. So with that said, guys, it has been a great conversation with you today. I wish you and all of your clubs the best, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks Thanks for having us, Jeff. And thank you to you for tuning into today's episode. I really appreciate the support. Remember, share the podcast with a friend or leave a review on the podcast app of your choice. Every star, every review helps us get in front of new listeners. And remember... There are only two seasons, winter and baseball.